What's up, Redemption? This is the Threshing Floor Podcast, episode number 21, coming at you. As always, I'm John Hendricks. On this week's episode, we're sitting down with friend of the podcast, Chris Fashman, and we're going to be talking about playgroup building and kind of going over some points that we made in the last episode about that, but with more perspective, because he's reached out to some other playgroup leaders to gather you know, some more experiences and ideas, and he wanted to bring those to you all. So we're going to be talking about that, and without further ado, we'll jump right into it. Thanks for being here. All right, thanks for joining on another episode of The Threshing Floor. As always, I'm John Hendricks, joined here by friend of the podcast, Chris Fashman. How you doing, Chris? I'm good, man. My, uh, my voice is trying to go out because I decided to take the little kids of the church putt-putting, so the cold weather got to me, so hopefully I don't cough too much and give you too many edits. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> or I could just be like a couple of weeks ago and leave a cough in just for, you know, kicks and giggles. Right. So we're going to be talking with Chris and following up on the first topic that he was on the podcast for, which was playgroup building and how to get that started and kind of grassroots style, how to gather some players and whatnot. And you said you've had some people reach out to you for, uh, I guess, follow up or next steps. And you mentioned that you were reaching out and doing some research with other people that had had successful playgroups to put together some information to kind of do a part two to that conversation. So I guess We'll just kind of kind of uh, let you know that I don't have anything prepared. Chris has some questions prepared that he asked other people and their responses. So if it's a little scattered, you can blame me. You can blame Chris. You can blame anyone you want. Um, you just pick your poison. Blame somebody. Yeah, it's, it, that's acceptable this week for sure. Well, uh, I guess before we get into it, um, kind of the big news that, that's happening within the game is – this new combo that that came to light from Jaden a couple of weeks ago, and not to not to kind of peek behind the curtain too much and get you mad at me, Chris, but um, being that you are part of the elder team and leadership for the game, you want to maybe take a few moments and just kind of say, uh, tell everyone where you guys are at with and what you guys think about the combo at the current point in time that we are at. So. Um... Obviously, the combo I'm assuming we're talking about is the Ephesian Widow and the sewing or the um, Life in the Sun combo, right? Yes, that can also also be uh, sewing bountifully, but you know mm-hmm. it it kind of got hit a little bit this week with the dual alignment not being discarded. So mostly right. just the Life in the Sun, just basically being able to deck out at will. Yeah. So as far as the the very simple basics, and I know. Um, John posted something too about it on the, on the discord. Um, but I will certainly kind of echo what he said, which is, um, we're very aware of it. We, we know that it, uh, exists. We know that it's happening. We know that, um, it's very powerful. Uh, we definitely, um, you know, miss this combo in, in testing and whatnot and, and, we kind of know what to look for now as we continue to test some more, but it's um, infinite drawing is definitely something that we probably don't want in this game. So it is, it is heavily being looked at and watched. Um, 
But at the same time, it's been one of those things where no official decisions or anything have been made yet because GOC's not even legal yet for tournaments. So right now, basically what we're seeing is we're seeing results and gameplay from what we are told by people that are uh, participating in the Lackey Grand Prix or people that are playtesting decks um, as far as getting ready for the tournament season with phase one because they have cards and hands and things like that. So we're definitely keeping an eye on what this looks like and what the reports are and how um, not aggressive this is because we know how aggressive it is, but what kind of experience this game style leads to or this gameplay leads to, is it, completely unstoppable does it completely shut down the opponent does it make it completely npe you know those are answers that we think we might have the answers to but not nothing's fully you know vetted yet so we don't want to make a rash decision on something that might not be as scary as we think it is if there's ways around it if we see that there's not a whole lot of ways around it then, you know, then again, especially if it leads to a game state that we don't like, then, you know, it's probably not going to continue. But until such a time, we haven't uh, fully made a decision on that yet. Um, To be fair, it's not the only card that we're watching either, or that's not the only combo we're watching even. Um, John put it in his post, and I don't know if anybody really talked about it, but we actually as an elder team have a, a watch list. And what that is, is that's a group of cards that we have seen potential negative interactions with. And we are literally just doing that. We're watching them. We're seeing how they're played in games. We're seeing how people react to them. We're seeing what kind of game states that they put things in. Um, that's not something that we plan on, on sharing with like what cards are on that. But at the same time, I don't. We don't necessarily mind to make it known that it exists because some of you guys might start saying, "Well, this card, if it's not on your watch list, might be." And here is why: like, if you get on here and just say, "Hey, this card is broken, so put it on your watch list," then we're going to get fifty thousand cards that they go on the watch list. So, but if we have a good reasoning and explanation as to why they maybe should actually be watched, then we'll consider it. Um, so it, it's definitely being watched. It's definitely, there's conversations. We, we've already even discussed potential erratas or bans if, if those are needed. So it, it's, it's definitely on the radar where we're not, we are not ignorant to the fact that it exists. So it, it's, um, but at this point in time, again, that card's not even legal for play yet. So we're not going to make a move just yet. But we also don't want to get deep within states and regionals and get ready for national play and then yank the plug on something with the, you know, just a week or two to go either. So we're, we're definitely being very mindful of it. That's definitely a fair answer. And I, I appreciate you kind of uh, touching on it just because I know there, there's probably people that listen to the podcast because it's a passive thing versus getting into the active discussions that are happening on discord and whatnot because it seems like all the all the conversations about it are pretty passionate and and some people you know when things start going back and forth they might just you know kind of you know excuse themselves out of that and not pay attention to it but definitely uh like knowing that you guys are taking your time with it because making a change to a card or a ban 
definitely has more impacts than just stopping one combo. So you have to, you have to, I guess, gauge what the impact is long term from it. So it's nice to know that you guys are um, doing that in a thorough way. So um, with that, we'll kind of transition and move into the main point, which is, you know, step two of developing your play group and whatnot. So Chris, you mentioned that you went back and you reached out to some other people so that you had different ideas and things and experiences from other people to share, not just your own. So I guess the big point of the first one was, how do you get these guys to come to a play group in the first place? How do you like ground zero, like me and me and Brad decide we want to do something and have a play group? What do we do to get those people to come in the door? What are what are ways that some of those people told you that they had success with? Well, and that is one of the the questions that I kind of asked the guys. And again, I wanted to um, kind of what I said in the first um, time I came on. I don't want to rehash everything that we talked about, obviously. But, you know, I, I'm not the end all be all for the conversation uh, for play groups. So I wanted to reach out and I talked to at least five different guys who have had successful play groups, uh, some of which actually still have very successful play groups. And there was three or four other guys that I wanted to talk to, and it just simply didn't work out. Um, some, some of that was because they never contacted me back. Some of that was because this, lie, this wor- uh, week for me, excuse me, has been extremely hectic. So I didn't get to reach out to a couple of people that I meant to and wanted to. But I still got some really good feedback from the the guys that I did talk to. And and even there's a ton of stuff that I've not even personally done that I'm now going to implement. So um, it's always good to get feedback from other people and, and, and just get those different views to, to do that. So that being said, one of the first questions we basically asked was, you know, how did you get them there kind of in the first place? You, you obviously are a successful playgroup leader, what did you do to get there? And all the guys who had a, a church obviously said that that was the, the easiest way to do it. Um, you, you already kind of have the people who are interested in a game like Redemption, whether it be a young kid um, you know, late elementary school, early middle school type, I don't, I don't know, uh, I guess I should say grades, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, some th- through sixth or seventh grade, you target those kids that are young enough to, uh, old enough to read and, and understand how a card game works, but they're not so old that, um, you know, card games are uncool or whatever happens when you get to high school or, you know, the older grades, stuff like that. And, and youth group is a, is a good thing to our, you know, children's and, and kid ministries and a church is a good thing to do too, because it's based on the Bible. And obviously you, you use that, but a lot, actually multiple of the guys were saying that they had no church environment to do that with. And so what they did was it was all really kind of about consistency and, and what that consistency looked like was they made their presence felt. And, and that, this is what all the guys basically said, was that they were just there. Whether it was a church and they were at the church and they introduced it to them and then they made themselves available um, either at the church or at their homes or, or wherever they were playing 
to to be available to play the games or um there was even a couple of guys who went to the people so they had uh they went to for instance a, a christian bookstore and they set up shop there and started playing and as people walked in and asked questions they they taught them the game and introduced them the game and then if they liked it then they obviously pointed them to the bookstore's collection of the of the cards or whatnot or they did go to that that Friday night magic at their local game store and they set up a table or they asked the owner to let them set up a table to to have um, the the opportunity to to introduce people to it. Another thing that one of the uh, people did in particular is even though they used a a church setting to introduce it and to show people that they were going to, you know, play this game and wanted to introduce people to this game. They had all of their gaming at their home and they actually did it on Friday nights. And kind of the thought process with that was especially for, if you're dealing with a a bunch of students it, it actually incentivizes the parents because what that did is that gave this particular playgroup leader the opportunity to say, bring them to my house, let them play a Christian card game. Again, for, you know, we're from the same church. So, you know, you, you know, hopefully you can, you know me or whatever, and you can trust me or you can, I, these people can vouch for me or whatnot and bring them to my home. And then you and, you know, you and your spouse can go have a, a, a date night while your kids hang out at my house and and play Redemption. That was definitely uh, something that I haven't done. And now I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that too. It's like, are there some people that maybe I can get into this game now because the parents wouldn't mind kind of potting their kids off on me on a Friday night or something, you know, to, to play this game or something to expand my play group. So I, I definitely thought that was interesting, and, and it's definitely a good thought that probably some of us haven't thought of. Yeah, and again, that comes back to also the consistency. If you get to where you're able to do that on a Friday night, and then it's a consistent thing that people rely on, I guess they're more inclined, I guess, to leave their kids with you if you become a reliable source of that because you're filling a need for them so that they can have some alone time or whatever. So you stressed it to me a bunch that you don't want to rehash everything from before. But now that you have some insight from other people, some of these are kind of remedial and touching back on some of the same stuff. Was there any, anything that you picked up that would really help you um, or, or something that maybe you're going to implement that you hadn't thought of yet for once you get them in the door, you show it to them. Boom. That, I guess that next step of getting them to, be excited about it enough to come back and want to learn and, and, you know, dive deeper into all that is the game of redemption. Yeah, there was definitely several things that, that were mentioned to me that I, I wanted to do. Um, but as far as talking to most of the guys, as far as getting them to come back, um, actually most of them said, and if, if this is not people's experience, then that's obviously unfortunate, but, um, Almost every single one of the guys that I talked to said that after I introduced the game, the people who loved the game and wanted to play the game just kept coming back. Like there was no incentive other than that. But they obviously did do some things that were that incentivized. They encouraged people to 
Uh, well, first off, they again, they were consistent when they met. They encouraged people to um, bring their own snacks and like, hey, I'm going to have some food. Or um, I ask the parents again, especially if they're bringing their kids for them to go on a date night, have a parent, um, at, you know, bring food to supply for the the kids that are there. And that's a good incentive for a lot of, especially if you're getting into, you know, adolescents and younger teenagers, especially for boys, you know, if you offer them food and soda, they're going to pretty much be there anytime. Um a really cool thing that some of you guys might have known it, um, and, and I'll spoil who this this one was. I wasn't going to say every single guy I talked to, even though I know they wouldn't care. But um, I talked to Bill Voigt, and a lot of the, you guys that are newer to this game have no idea who he is because just life caught up. And That's and me. Yeah, and he's been out of the game for a little while. But when he was in the game, there was nobody – I mean, the best person to compare Voight to is for you guys is, is probably Roy, who's just he he goes out of his way to make sure the play group uh, gets taken care of and he supplies them with cards and he does all of this stuff. But Bill is one of the main reasons why if you go back and look at the national tournament history that, that Minnesota had 250 people. He's not the only reason, so I don't want to give him all the all the credit, especially because there was there was four different play groups up there, and they all did uh, very good jobs. But Bill did some very unique things that nobody else has ever done, and one of the really cool things that Bill did was every summer he had what he called a mini camp, and and what they did is it was kind of, for the people who know what. Uh, vacation Bible school is, it was basically kind of like a redemption Bible vacation Bible school. So he, he charged $20 and for that $20, you went all five days of that week, Monday through Friday for a half a day. I didn't get the exact times, but it was probably four or five hours or something like that. And what you would do is he would introduce you to the game of redemption through um, song and Bible study and and showing the cards and having a devotion about uh, several of the cards and, and tell the Bible story and show the cards as they came up in the story. Then he would transition to teaching them the game and the $20 bought you a starter deck, a full starter deck and and packs to to open and so day one you're opening these you're kind of built you're learning the game with the new starter deck then you're using the packs that you just got to to build them and then each day you came back he continued to teach stories he offered scripture memory and uh, bible study questions that he would give you free cards if you answered them or came back in the next day with um you know, with that, and then they would have strategy sessions, which teaches you how to play cards or how to play deck types and things like this. And then in, in just rinse, recycle and repeat Monday through Thursday, except for obviously giving them a brand new starter, but he did give packs and things out throughout the week and, and whatnot. And then Friday would culminate with a, a tournament. And, and what he would do this week is he would have the young kids who either are, are new or inexperienced obviously be part of this mini camp. 
and the kids that were older or the experienced players, they would be the the helpers. And then their incentive for uh, helping with the mini camp was the fact that they got to hang out afterwards and eat pizza and and play more games and trade based on you know packs and stuff that they opened, and then they got free entry to the tournament. So it was, it's a really cool idea that I think we as a community could really, if we could figure out a way to implement something like that, um, or, you know, at least something similar to it would really kind of probably expand the community in a big way, uh, like it did, like it worked in Minnesota. Get a bunch of kids to come sign up and go to some type of like redemption school. Seems like the perfect opportunity for Professor Chambers to yell at people, <laughs> like that, <laughs> like that video on YouTube where he's telling people most people don't know how to play Redemption. Right. <laughs> um, right. But definitely getting a week of of like come and get introduced to it before you you know culminate and have that first tournament, like that guided path to your first tournament experience. Seems like a cool, unique way to do it as far as uh, kind of. I guess compounding all of that into one week because the way that I see it, not that I've given away cards to a bunch of people or whatnot, but it seems like most of the time you give someone a starter deck or you encourage them to buy the starter deck and then they go a couple of weeks, you know, they might ask questions and then there's like, there's, it goes either one of two ways. They never touch the cards again. They forget that they have them or, you know, it then like there's this dead period and then, oh yeah, that, yeah, I bought a starter deck, you know, a month ago. Mm-hmm. But if you get them on this path and you you know you squeeze it all into one week to where boom now they've had a tournament experience, I can see how that can hook people. I don't know about uh, twenty dollars covering covering the starter in three packs. Now you might have to up that. Um, yeah. Now to be fair, that was that was GH when it was ten dollars and three foil packs at the time. You know, yeah, it wasn't the the IJ plus with you know five box pack or three box packs. So. Yeah, the pricing has definitely changed a little bit. But. Yeah. This is kind of like, uh, I guess, moving into, and you tell me if I'm skipping something that you want to you wanna mention, but kind of the way we left off in the first conversation, I guess it would have been really good for me to go back and listen to that just to make sure that, you know, we pick up all of the loose ends there. But we kind of left off with, like, gathering up the cards for the player. Like, so you have, um, I don't know, uh, five five players that have, have shown up to a couple of different events and you're at that point to where they played the starter decks a couple of times. They've got a couple of new packs, but it's starting to get a little dormant just because the starters, they're made to experience how to play the game and then move on. They're not made to con- continuously play that and just, you know, that's their deck. But that's more of a jumping off point. So how do you move from that point to where you've had people come in, they've got experience with a starter deck and now they're ready for whatever that next that next thing looks like. Where do you get the cards for that next step? How do you encourage them to invest in cards themselves? Whichever way you want to take that. Well, I mean, we can go both ways. Um, so how do you, how do you get the cards to, to get there? That, that was definitely a question that I, I asked. And the answer was um, simply for some of the guys, uh, they didn't, they didn't necessarily have the collection when they started the quote unquote play group, but they, because the, it, you know, it took off and it got off the ground. They decided that they needed to acquire some cards to, to do so. And there's, and there's a different, 
uh, method to, to do that. Some, some people had been in the game, uh, myself included, uh, a really long time. So we, we had a large collection of stuff and, and that's what I was saying from the, the first time in the first, um, episode that if, if you are even remotely planning on doing some play group stuff or trying to introduce the game to some people, I, I cannot recommend enough the buying the the full booster box or, or whatnot, the display box of the 24 packs, because what that's going to do is that's going to give you a lot of extra commons in particular. And if, again, kind of like we talked about, just to touch on it, it and it's going to give you a lot of classic cards. And, I, and again, I know that we're, we're in a rotation world now where if you're going to play state regionals and nationals, you have to have rotation cards. But again, when we're talking about starting a brand new play group and we're starting, we're talking about kids who have never played redemption at all. Rotation is not even something that's on their mind and it shouldn't be something that's fully on your mind because it just needs to be one of those things where you just need to introduce them to the game. If you can afford, kind of like we talked about, buying a bunch of battle boxes or common sets or something like that, and then having a full rotation collection for them to do that, then that's absolutely fabulous. But most of us don't have that much money or in, you know investment to be able to do that. I mean, even with the huge, gigantic collection I have, I still struggle with having enough rotation cards to to have available for my kids sometimes, especially in the new sets. So um, having having those classic cards to give them is, is going to go a long way. And, and and you can acquire those several different ways. Again, you can buy the booster boxes. Several of the guys have uh, waited for a player to, to quit Redemption and they bought their collection. I've done that several times. Multiple of us actually had the generosity of others that simply were getting out of the game. And they saw or knew that we were pushing playgroups and trying to uh, create other playgroups or support other playgroups. And they've actually donated cards to to people to do that. National tournaments, um, it, it had, didn't happen the last couple of years, unfortunately, mostly because I feel like the, the guys who came tended to be guys who have been around for at least a little while or, or on the competitive edge or the competitive side, rather. But um, every national tournament that I've been to where there was um, uh, a lot of people there and, and the booster drafts contained a lot of classic cards that a lot of people had, almost always there was a box set up for, hey, throw any card that you do not want into this box and we're going to give this away to somebody who's hoping to start a play group. Um, I, I've never been, the the generosity within this community is overwhelming at, at a lot of times. So that is something that, that will happen often. And, you know, sometimes people are even looking to, to throw stuff, uh, throw some extra cards to people or something, but because nobody asks, um, you know, they don't know to do that sometimes. Um, some people then just felt motivated to, again, they wanted the play group to get off the ground. They wanted stuff to uh, always have available. So they bought packs and, and products from people um, themselves. One guy was telling me he bought uh, some stuff from eBay. Unless you're buying from um, John Mihalishan, who's Faith Raider, 
Uh, they said, don't do that because it most, it's mostly just the, a lot of unlimited profit stuff for people that got into the game way back when and, and has quit. But, um, so that's kind of the answer to the questions for really long answer for the, you know, how did you acquire cards and things like that? Okay. Well, let me ask you this. When I did the episode with Derek talking about the retail side of redemption, he mentioned that Rob gives a discount to retailers or whatnot if you have a business, which is what he was starting. But he also mentioned that Rob gives a discount if you're in ministry or you're um, like a youth pastor and you have a youth group that you're you're doing a play group with. And I guess, how, how does that work? Um, is that something that like, for example, my buddy Brad, who if we were to start a play group, we would be more than likely you know, using his position with the church to, you know, do it mostly with the youth, youth aged and, and younger kids that are involved in the, the minute various ministries at the church. How does it work for getting a discount from Rob? And what is the way that Rob expects that to work if you're using that to gather cards for a play group? So the way that works is if you are in particular trying to start a play group, he, you know, obviously doesn't want to just give it to everybody. But if you do work for a church as well, and you have a tax exempt uh, form, you actually just contact him via email and just say, Hey, I wanted to apply for this. I, I work for a church. We're building a play group. I have a tax exempt through the church. And then he'll give you all the details. I honestly can't tell you uh, what that looks like. It, um, I did it so long ago that I don't remember anything about it, uh, honestly, other than I remember I sent an email. Rob told me what he needed. I replied back with everything that he needed. And then he, he I don't remember if he sent another email verifying and then kind of explaining what the details of that look like is, or if he did that beforehand. I don't remember, but he will definitely give you um, the information as far as what that now looks like for you. There's a certain um, discount that you get. And then I don't uh, think that discounts slightly more than what he allows you to discount things for. Um, so he does have a threshold that if I, re- again, if I, this is if I'm remembering correctly, um, there is a threshold that he, uh, tells you that you can't go under. And so that's, uh, was a requirement as well to make sure that you did not do that. Um, so it, like I said, if, if it's something that you, um, you know, qualify for, then certainly reach out and, and have that discussion with him and, and, you know, let him give you the details. Cause I don't remember it, but it's, it's always something that he does offer people because, um, you know, again, I, I don't know if I we've said it on the podcast, but um, if it hasn't been said, it needs to be. And if it has been said, it probably needs to be said again. Um, Rob is the most generous person that, um, especially businessman that I have ever met or ever dealt with. And honestly, he is generous to a fault and he would rather give people discounts and keep this game going and 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 do what helps the community than what helps him sometimes. So definitely reach out if if you qualify for that and and get the get the discount to help grow the game for sure. Yeah, I knew that 
when Derek mentioned it, it was like some like that was the first time I had heard anything about it personally, and then I don't know that it's it's really come up since. So just wanted to put that on the radar of people that are in that position, and I guess just reach out to Rob for the details. We can't give you that because we don't know. So I guess as you transition, you've you've got players, you've got some cards. However, we're moving through this little uh, jagged timeline. Now you're looking at, and I know that you had the one example where you do all the week week uh, camp and then you end in a tournament. But what do, what do tournaments look like for the young play group that you know maybe they're having their first tournament? How do you how do you approach tournament play? How do you try to balance things out? What are your expectations and all of that? Um. As far as as tournament play, it kind of goes back to a little bit what we talked about last time, where it's if if you feel like you and your group is ready to have a tournament and you can afford it um, to do it, then you can go. I I mean, my thought process is uh, obviously the rules uh, can be convoluted and and difficult at times, and we're working on fixing that. But you know, if you feel like you're ready, then then jump into it and make it look how it needs to look for you, right? Um, and we we talk about competitive balance and and issues with people being discouraged if they keep getting beat and things like that. Um, and honestly, a lot of the guys that we talk to um, they they've either done things to address that or they've not experienced it at all. Um, a lot of people, you know, we, we talked about uh, the point of entry and cost and things like that. Uh, a lot of people said that, uh, you know, they've never charged more than $5 for any tournament they've ever done. And uh, they've, they've never had an issue with nobody ever being able to pay. Um, we do have some other guys who said that they've never charged more than $5 but they do have issue with people being able to pay because of the area that they live in or, you know, the, the, the general, you know, uh, place that people are just in their lives and whatnot based on where the play group is located or whatnot. And the answer has always been, um, you know, $5 typically is, is easy enough for most people to afford it especially if you want to go back to kind of what we talked about a little bit ago, if you can incentivize the parents in particular to say, Hey, uh, we're going to have food. We're going to have drinks, have your kid bring a snack and $5 for uh, a tournament on a Friday night. And you guys get a date night. Most parents are going to be able to, to do that. Um, It's not, again, it's not always the case and and it hasn't always been the case for all the guys I talked to. But so for as far as what that looks like is is people either just let them come in for free and they just kind of ate the the five dollar entry fee for them. And then, you know, just let them play because that's going to be the best way to keep them coming anyways. And then eventually when they can pay, they're going to. Um, But and then as far as tournaments itself too, um, to get to get the most out of your tournaments, it doesn't matter how many you have, but whenever you do have them, um, just be consistent with, uh, with how often you have them with when you have them. So I know, um, for instance, there was some, uh, a couple of different guys said that they had a monthly tournament 
And one of them said it was always the third Saturday of the month. And another one of the guys said it was always like the second Friday of the month or something like that. So, um, you know, it was one of those, it was, it was a consistency thing, or if it wasn't as consistent as that, like every month, but it was every two months or every three months, you at least gave people plenty of notice that, Hey, this was happening then and, and whatnot. And, um, and that was enough to make sure everybody came to it and, you know, wanted to be able to, you know, to, to play and do it. Um, now, as far as balancing the, um, like the competitive play, um, that especially if you're starting a play group from fresh, uh, from the ground up, uh, that's not really an issue for the first little bit, you know, because everybody's kind of on the same page, but if you do see, that some people are winning more than others and and that becomes a maybe potentially an issue then the thing that um a couple of the playgroup leaders would do would they would run multiple categories at the same time and they would try to make sure that either the experienced players uh, play different categories or all the experienced players went and played this category while the younger players played this category and that kind um, or there was even uh, one of the guys who said on, on a lot of the Friday night tournaments, especially for districts in particular, you, you pay for a district tournament and I think you get three or four different categories for the same price. And they weren't going to play all night. So they ran all three or four categories at the same time. And then that naturally split up um, all of the prizes and things like that, which helped the competitive balance as well. Okay. I know that you particularly, because I've come to a a few of your tournaments now, I know that you have Sean who seems like he, he has more access to cards, whether that's by desire or just by being able to financially afford them because he's a 16 year old that has a job versus some of the other players. And I'm sure you've had that conversation with him to where you you, you sit down and you're like, hey, to, to try to potentially balance it out a little bit. If you if you have just like one really dominant player, if that, that becomes a thing, most of the time in a situation like this, I think you could probably go to them and explain for the health of the, the long-term developing the other players. Um, have you ever done anything to where you've like limited yourself by – um, obviously if you sit down and you're playing kids and you've got all of the staple dominance per se or, or whatnot, I know that you have those, those decks that you've had your kids play against. Do you limit yourself in deck building when you play in those tournaments with them or? If it is a, um, smaller local, maybe even district tournament where it's just my guys and we know that nobody else is going to be coming in from out of town or anything like that then there have been times where I kind of, uh, yeah, dumb down a deck or whatever, however you want to call it to, to give them more opportunity to, to do that. Um, I I've done that personally and, and I have asked Sean to do that personally and, and he's been willing to do it too, because he knows, um, you know, and this is one thing that kind of all the guys have said, but as far as my, as far as Sean goes, I'll brag on him a little bit, but he, he's always been one of those that he, he's been willing to make his deck weaker to give the other guys an opportunity because he'd rather just play the game 
and get experience with the the game and the cards and things like that than he would necessarily winning especially as you said because he's ha- he has the luxury of of having a job and being able to save up money and and doing these things that he basically already has every card in the game there's a few that he's still pursuing you know and he knows that if he wins it, he knows that if he wins then he's got packs that he really doesn't need to open because he's just going to get a bunch of duplicates anyways um, so he doesn't care to do that. Um, I will say that other guys said that they've never really had issues with that because again, you, you split the categories up or something like that. And then they get, uh, packs and cards, but also there's a, there's, there is an incentive of, of kind of some neatness where if in particular with my group, if, if Sean and I are playing and the guys beat us, they're going to want to beat us with, you know, real decks or whatnot. And then they take pride, even more pride in that. So as much as sometimes we are afraid that that could be a discouragement to some people, um, it, it actually is almost an incentive for them too, because they want to get good enough to everybody in my playgroup wants to get good enough to beat me. You know what I mean? And, um, and that's the end goal is, Hey, I'm finally good enough to, to beat him. Uh, the playgroup leader and, and another playgroup leader said that with all his students, you know, that's their entire goal of, of playing is I know he's got more cards than me. I know he's better than me, but if I can beat him or at least get really close to, to winning, then that's kind of a win in my book too. Um, how do you think, and you have more, you have more knowledge of this than anyone. And I'm not trying to pull any more information out of you that than what we know already, how much, do you think the new starter decks are going to impact playgroup building, especially in that early on ongoing part to where you're just getting people familiar with it? The fact that the decks are somewhat mirrored and I know that they might do, you know, different things based on the theme or whatnot, but you know, for every ability this deck has, this deck has a, an ability that mirrors it. How do you think that's going to help for the initial introducing people to the game? Um, to, to clarify, uh, everything is fully mirrored. Um, just to go ahead and get that out there, especially since we are uh, planning on having it at nationals. Uh, we want to to get information out there. We're obviously going to slowly spoil stuff. We don't want to give it all to you at once. But um, yeah, so all of the, the card type, the stats, and the ability on the card are 100% mirrored between both decks. Um, and, and we wanted to do that from, and, and that kind of goes into your, your follow-up question. Actually, stop. I'm going to go back a minute. Um, I, I do want to say that some of the other guys did brag about their playgroup too. I, obviously, I bragged on Sean. Um, but when I asked them about the the competitive edge and things like that, um, a lot of the guys said that that was definitely a worry or a fear of theirs, but their guys just kind of stepped up on their own and and traded within themselves uh one guy in particular was saying how his kids um would collect an entire offense or defense and then when they decided to quit playing that and they went to do something else they would actually trade that whole defense that they didn't use anymore for somebody else's defense that they hadn't tried yet um and there was uh, every single one of the guys I talked to said that that they that all the kids would would trade within themselves, and there was actually um, a lot of generosity within the every single group that I talked to. 
Um, so, you know, it, it may, and that's a good thing. And like I said, I've seen it within my group. I've seen it within uh, these other groups. Another thing that's happened, and this, again, this, people assume it's a bad thing, but it's not um, always a bad thing. But people have played the game and, and, and accrued some cards in a collection. And they just simply quit playing, you know, for, for different reasons, whether they're going off to college or, or, you know, just life situation changes. And they've been, just been so cool to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to play anymore. So here's my collection. So why don't you just give it to somebody that can't afford it? Um, so if, if worrying about competitive balance and things like that um, is a struggle or an issue, it, uh, most of the guys that I've talked to, um, have said it's it's actually not been near as bad of a struggle or an issue that um, that, that they assumed it would be. Now there's there's definitely going to be those highly ultra competitive guys that want to win everything like you talked about, um, but that hasn't been the full experience with a lot of these other guys because I, I will say this dealing with both mobile games and, and card games and things like this, the people that are overly you know extremely competitive maybe not overly competitive but the ones that are extremely competitive. You know, you, you kind of tend to be one of those, right? I try to be. <laughs> right, you try to be. Uh, but in, in that sense, like, so if you're, you you would consider yourself a competitive player. If you go to a tournament, is it going to feel better for you knowing that you placed maybe first, second, or third? You know, maybe you didn't win, but maybe you placed second or third against a field of 10 competitive players over the fact that, oh, I placed first, but I only played one really competitive person. You know, which one feels better? Definitely the one with the stronger field. Right. And so, and and I think that's kind of the natural drive of the competitive players is that, you know, I don't want to just stomp a bunch of people. Sure, you might be selfish for a while and won all the prizes, but eventually that's going to get boring. So you're going to want the field that you're in to be competitive too. So a lot of the guys haven't had issues with it because the people have just kind of stayed, their, their playgroup guys have kind of stabilized the competitive nature themselves. Uh, within themselves, which was was super cool to hear, I thought. I will say along that same vein, when you talk about me being a competitive player, I can go ahead and tell you that one realization that I know that I have to accept, and maybe somebody else out there needs to accept that, or, or the same thing, but building a play group is 100% for the people that you're going to bring in, and it's 0% for yourself. Uh, from all of the talks that we've had, talks that I've had with other people. So like me and Brad, we, you know, we like the game. We want to have more players so that we can play against more players. Mm -hmm. But you're not bringing people in to get them up to a competitive level for you to be able to play and have highly competitive. If that's the motivation, then you're going to, you know, try to cherry pick and, and skip steps that are going to develop good players for you to just, you know, go and go and beat on them and whatnot. Yeah. basically and so every time that it, it you know it comes up i i acknowledge the thought in my head that like you can't you can't when a kid walks through the door and picks up the starter deck it's not like okay give me six to eight weeks before i'm able to beat this kid mm-hmm. you know with the full you know array of my card collection it's you don't really care about ever per se, per se you playing them it's about bringing them in and i guess knowing that there there's going to be such a disparity between your level and their level that it may never be bridged and you may always be better than them. And then you're not trying to rush them to get up to your competitive level, which I think is honestly going to be one of those internal struggles that I have 
if we get into play group uh, where we start having a little bit of success is making sure that I'm not trying to force them up to my level faster than they should. And I think that a lot of people probably have that same, that same, whether they'll admit it or not, they're aware of it or not, because it does take a certain level of self-awareness. But knowing that when you meet these, you know, Royal Rangers or, or however you come in contact with, you know, players, you know, whether it's kids from church is you can play with them. It's unrealistic to really ever expect that you will be a competitive adversary for them and they would push you and you push them. So you're not really building the play group for yourself. You're building it for all of those players. Well, and, and that's the thing. If you And if you do it right and, and you build people to, again, love and and be excited about the game, and that's what the guy said is that that was really just the biggest incentive for them to come back was just they loved and they were excited about the game and they were excited to play the game. And if you can just build that, then you will – either with that group or eventually have some highly competitive players that you can do that with. You know what I mean? It, it's certainly a lot of fun for me to sit down and, and play games um, with Sean, who who is very good at the game and has a very good mind for the game and thinks about things that I don't. And, and even though, you know, there's a lot of times that maybe I, I will still – win because I make less errors and I'm not changing my deck as many times as him or something like that. But he, he still does beat me and it is competitive play and, and it is a lot more fun to play that way than it is to kind of dumb down your decks or play weaker decks. Um, so you will, you will get that um, if you build it the right way eventually. But if that's your end goal, like you said, if you start out with that being your end goal, um, you're going to skip over people that don't seem to meet that, which is, you know, obviously not healthy for them and, and not going to do your play group any good. Since I, you know, had that thought in my head, I just figured I'd put it here on record for someone else that's thinking, oh, I'm going to build this play group. And, and, you know, in six to eight weeks, we're going to have this big tournament field. I, w- I would pump the brakes on that. Now, I would say that you mentioned, you mentioned that sometimes kids like to come and challenge you with like your full deck or whatnot. And maybe that's, maybe that's something to where you could have, um, as a playgroup host, so if me and Brad are hosting, just to use him as an example again, because he's my local local other player, um, maybe maybe we pick like teams to where like if you really want to try to beat us, we're gonna play like our full deck or you know a highly competitive deck with all the cards in teams, and then maybe we don't necessarily play the the other categories or whatnot, but it gives gives them that where you're consistently there for them to challenge against, but you're not you know, warping the competition by by being the, you know, the person with the most, the access to the most cards. So I know that you also mentioned previously about the, the different decks that you use to challenge your kids to develop. I think you said you had four level decks or maybe five. Yeah, four. Okay. And do you have those, um, do you have those accessible to where they're easy for people to go and find and then do you have any advice if someone wants to implement those as part of their strategy to develop the actual players once they get them in the door? That's kind of a way to to do what you were talking about, to play the kind of your cards and things like that. Um, yeah, so the all of the decks that are at least the, the first four level decks that, again, Mark created three of them and I created a fourth, Mark Underwood, um, 
They are on the forums. I will be honest, they are probably buried and I don't know if you can find them. And I actually had a conversation with somebody um, just this week, um, even one of the, the playgroup leaders that was starting a, uh, a new playgroup and wanted to use those. So I, I do plan on resurrecting those, giving you the deck list, fully explaining what they do. Um, and so I do have those four. And if you want to know the details about those, go go listen to the previous podcast. So I don't take up too much time here. Um, and then I do have the, I have 12 introduction decks and there might need to be 13 now. I don't know. I, I need to see what I want to do uh, with some of the new abilities in, in GOC. But, um, and, and those I think are on the forums as well. If they're not, I will post them and resurrect them, um, or resurrect them and, and explain those as well. But that, that's definitely kind of the first step that, that I have done. And then the, and that gives them more of a competitive feel because again, those decks are stronger. And, and in particular, like this last Wednesday, actually, I played one of my guys and one of the decks is a hand control deck. And so, and again, the deck just totally focuses. Again, it's the introduction deck, so it's introduction introducing you to hand control. So one of the, and that's literally all it does is it it tries to wreck your hand. And so if you put in a storehouse, then you're going to beat it because you your hands protected. And I don't have a whole lot of ways to deal with storehouse because again, it's just an introduction. I don't want it to be tournament level yet. So it teaches you, again, like the, the four introduction decks do, these are the four level decks do, the four introduction decks teaches you kind of some of the different strategies within redemption, whether it's hand control, mill, speed, turtle, um, sight lock, which is fairly irrelevant now, but it's still a thing, right? Um I'm trying to think of some other ones off the top of my head and I can't think of them. Uh, decrease, uh, territory destruction, different things like that, just to give you a feel for the different options within the game. And then obviously most people are going to take two or three of those things and combine them into their their main deck. That's pretty cool, though, that you, you show them all of these different styles so that not only are they learning the mechanics of the game, but they're also seeing what is available and then maybe finding you know what they like best. Do they like hand control better than just aggro speed and whatnot. So that that's a pretty cool way to do that. Yeah. And, and that's a, and that's certainly a big step up because again, if you're not prepared for it, then like that hand control deck in particular, it's, it's a, it's basically a not a literal copy of a deck that was run and won a nationals, but we're talking 10, 12 years ago. So most people would not lose to it anymore. Plus it's mostly classic, but uh, most people wouldn't lose to it anymore because they have enough hand protection and stuff that you would have to, that person would have to adjust. But if you're not prepared for it, then it's certainly very difficult to beat. But if you simply prepare for it or know, okay, this deck is a possibility. So I need to make sure I have a little bit of hand control and I make them, I have a 12 sided dice. I make them roll and, and play a couple of games against it. And then we roll a new deck. So you, you don't just get beat up by the same thing over and over again. Uh, there's a little bit of variety in there. Like I said, I'll, I'll put all that information out there because it's it, it helps, and I think uh, that'll that'll help with playgroups. But that that's one way to do it. Then again, another way to do it is if you don't want to deal with those introduction decks, um, then you go to kind of like identifier decks, very similar to um, Derek's contender decks. And if you want to make those even stronger, then obviously you put better lost souls, better dominance, some ultra rares in that. 
and and that's a nice step up as well. And that gives them the feel for how different um, identifiers and nations or whatever uh, work and how they play. And there is some of that. Obviously, Egyptians tend to mill. Um, Exodus is a good offense to help mill. If you want to do the Moabites or the Romans or something like that, then there is a bit of hand control within that. So you, you those do kind of the same thing as well, maybe to a lesser degree that the introduction decks do. But there's still a very good introduction for... Um, like you said, that kind of quote unquote competitive level of play without necessarily playing a national stack. Okay. Let me, let me ask you something. And this is me. Um, I mentioned last week on the podcast that I was just spitballing. So if I'm, if I'm completely off base here, just let me know. Have you thought about, or have you ever reached out to one of the retailers and thought about like selling these pre-built? Cause that, that could be something that, yeah, there might be a hefty price tag on it up front, but if you're like starting a play group and you were able to buy these quote unquote level decks that are already built sleeved up with these introduction decks. Oh, I got you. No, I haven't. Um, I don't know if fisc- fiscally that makes sense, but it would give these retailers some outlet for some of those classic cards that aren't in as high of demand now because of rotation. Right. Well, there you go. So uh, how about this? I, I haven't thought about that, and and I even though the introduction decks are technically my creation, the, the level decks aren't. So I will repost them, and if one of the secondhand retailers decides that that's something they want to do uh, to see if playgroup leaders would be interested in that, uh, then all power to them. I, I no longer have uh, the card collection to um, create that. I might have uh, sold and or gotten rid of a lot of my cards, so... Um, I no longer have the incentive to, to do that. And if they want to send me a bone for, you know, that thought process, then so be it, but that's not necessary. <laughs> yeah. I just, when you, when you talk about it and then just, if you could make that easy, like you mentioned Derek, you know, picking out one of his contender decks and if another level of that was like play group basics or something like that. Well, and. And because they are classic cards, especially if you, again, if you want to start building a collection of cards, um, and I'm not saying don't use a secondhand retailer, obviously. Um, but if you can buy the the full booster boxes and you get all those classic cards, then you'll acquire a lot of the stuff that you need to create these decks anyways. And, um, and, and with that, you know, you don't even necessarily have to go buy a full deck. Maybe you just need a few individual cards or, I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of people now that have a lot of classic cards that don't really know what to do with them. So if you kind of put a list of cards or something that you're looking for, you could probably get them for pretty cheap too. So that uh, there's, there's multiple ways to do it, but obviously if, if you're trying to do that and leave your collection to give to, to play group members and you're creating these decks and don't have the, all of the cards to do so, then that would not necessarily be a bad thing. Yep. Um, so I guess, I'm, I'm about at the end of my questions that I have. I have one final thought I, I want to give, but before I get there, is there anything that, that maybe we haven't touched on or that we, we went over pretty quickly that you want to highlight? Yeah, there was, there was a few other things that, um, you know, some of the guys said that we maybe could have hit on, but maybe didn't. Um, some, uh, so some of the things that some of the guys did to incentivize or, or bring them in, again, a lot of them didn't have to incentivize, but um, they decided to do some of this anyways. They um, 
they would have door prizes or, or pack giveaways. They would just randomly give a pack away during a playgroup night or something like that. And so obviously the more um, playgroup nights that you showed up to, um, you would be able to eventually acquire a pack just by having a giveaway. Um, a lot of guys I talked to and even some guys I didn't talk to, I know have uh, what they call a free box. And kind of what that looks like is um, they are somebody like me who has either opened so many packs or been given a collection or bought a collection or, or whatever. And they have so many of the old school, in particular, classic cards that they'll just put a free box out. And, um, and, and a lot of those aren't great. Maybe a lot of them are limited, unlimited, but there's going to be some jewels in there every once in a while. And the kids can just go find, um, you know, so say you give them the IJ or the Israel's Deliverance KL decks when those come out, then, you know, they want to make a, so a mono brigade deck. Um, even though they might not be the best cards in the game, at least you can go grab these out and make a, a full mono brigade deck. So when you say free box, you don't mean like giving away a box. You mean having a box of cards that you, having a box of singles that, yeah, that sorry. they can pick through and grab. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely, um, you know, something that they, they incentivized, uh, several of the guys as well. And I know I mentioned this last time, but I think it's important enough to at least mention again. Um, a lot of the guys talked about the importance of making them committed. And, and a, the best way to make them committed was to try to do what you can to get people to make an initial purchase. It's it's not, and we're not talking about a big purchase, right? We're not talking about going out and buying a uh, an $80 contender deck, even though that does work for some people. Um, we're talking about buying a, you know, th these don't exist right now. And, and, and there's, you know, we're trying to do what we can to, to create different things and, and different, um, options for people. But, um, at one point in time, there was a gift tin and the gift tins had a starter deck and like five packs in it or something like that. And so it would have the, the GH starter deck and then some of the foil packs. So, you know, getting them that initial, um, what, uh, that purchase. One of the guys is actually, uh, like I said, he he ran a, a successful play group. He's starting a new uh, play group, and they're starting by doing a sealed deck tournament. And you have to buy the starter deck, and then you have to buy a couple of packs, and to to get in. And but again, that's just to simply get the incentive to to not only play and learn the game, but because you made a purchase, it doesn't always work. Um, but because you made a purchase, you are definitely more incentivized to continue. And then at that point, then you, you know, obviously you give them the free box and you give them the giveaways and you give them a new Jerusalem if they've played long enough or something like that to, to help incentivize them to continue to come back. But a lot of times the excitement of the game and that initial purchase is a lot to, even if it is just $10 or something is enough to, to help them stay committed. Um, and then as far as those um, other initial purchases, um, some, some of the guys came up with some um, really cool thought processes that I'm actually probably going to start doing um, that, uh, like I said, I've never thought of this. And uh, 
Um, and, and now that I throw it out there, hopefully everybody does this. But if if you're one of those people that are buying boxes and you are a competitive player and you don't care about the classic cards, um, do continue to buy the boxes if you are looking for um, building the playgroup. Because what one of the guys has done is, you know, the the ten classic cards that come in all the packs of the of the new stuff. Yep. What they did was they, when they would open the their boxes for their sets or whatnot, they would literally just take the packs, set them aside. They wouldn't even look at them, but they would set them aside and put them in a box. And after they had so many of them, they would take them out, uh, maybe mix them up or something like that, but lay them out on a table or put them in a box or whatever. And during a playgroup night, they would sell those 10 card packs. They'd sell like 10 of those 10 card packs um, for, for like nothing, like a dollar, $5, you know, pick your, pick your poison there. Um, because again, those don't really cost you anything when you're buying a new box as a, as a, as a competitive, co- you know, collector or anything like that, you're buying it for the new packs, the new stuff and, and all of your money and your values in that. So just to get $5 for, you know, a handful of those insert packs is is basically better than nothing. And now you do a booster draft. And and you're teaching kids how to play booster. And you're also uh, expanding their collection by, uh, I mean, exponentially, right? Especially if you're doing a hunt, you know, um, 10 of those, you're, you don't need 10 because that's technically a hundred cards for a, you know, a 50 card deck because it's all classic cards. Um, so you can get away with five, six, seven of those. Um, but even, but even then, like you're, you're exponentially growing your play groups, um, collections. And then at that point, that's where your collection comes in and that free box comes in and you start trading and, and, and you do things like that. Um, and you can even do that with, um, some of the, uh, commons and things from the new sets. If you've collected enough, maybe you can throw them in, uh, the trade box or the trade thing. Um, another thing that a lot of people had told me that they did was they, uh, any, any, um, kind of staple cards that they have, if they had enough of them, they would try to give some away or, if they had extras of of some of the better, you know, battle winners or negates or something like that from maybe some of the newer sets, they would sell them at a at a discount at like at least fifty percent off of the secondhand retailers. Again, they're not trying to to hurt the secondhand retailers, but at the same time, like why would you make your kids go to the secondhand retailers when you when you have the stuff? And, and that's what I do. I sell my stuff to the guys that are in my play group for cheaper than. They can buy it from somebody else. Not again, not trying to keep that money from going to somebody else, but just for the simplicity that they don't have to go through anybody else at that point. Then um, that I mean, that was basically kind um, you know a, a lot of what they said. There were a lot of good conversations. Um, another thing that was mentioned: if you if you do see that um, competitive balance is an issue within your play group. Um, I think I mentioned this one before, uh, but run multiple categories at the same time. And uh, that helps spread out the competitiveness because you can't play every category. Um, And another thing um, that Bill did in particular, since he had so many 
so many people up in Minnesota there for a while was he did kind of do a type A thing. And, and what that would look like is he would do um, he and you could technically do this. You could have a local um, you could kind of host two locals at the same time. And one of the locals was for the young kids and one of the locals was for your competitive players. And then if somebody started winning or if somebody won X amount of the quote unquote younger kid tournament that they had to be part of the bigger person tournament, um, obviously that that's a little bit less realistic for, unless you've got a really big group. Um, but the, the thought process is still there, right? Where if you've, if you've got a bunch of younger inexperienced guys and you want to keep them separated and you can't afford multiple categories or something like that, maybe, um, you know, give them some prize support out of your collection or something like that. Um, you know, um, and, and another thing that people do, and this is what I do a lot and it's why I place in, in our, our RNRS so much is if uh, another way to, to work on the competitive balance for sure is play a lot of sealed deck and, and play a lot of booster draft. Um, because there is no compet like the the only competitive edge within that is um, kind of knowing what to draft and the deck building of, of ability. Um, but you at least start out on an even playing field, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely a, an even playing field, unless you're playing with jeremy because every time i play with jeremy i feel like i find something out about it that he has not told me like rulings because i'm I'm kind of new to boost, booster draft as well but definitely if you're leading a play group make sure you tell them that they cannot put souls in sites because <laughs> my first booster draft i completely sold out to drafting a bunch of sites and i was like all right i'm about to lock somebody down and then i found out as we were building the deck like after we had already drafted you can't put souls in sites Sure. Yeah. And, and I've had, and I've accidentally done that as well, you know, forgot to announce that or something, but it's, it's an official rule now. So hopefully that's not missed as much. Um, and boosters also pretty, pretty competitive or, you know, pretty even unless you're playing somebody like Brian Jones who went undefeated for two straight years in booster draft. I don't know how that happened other than he got ridiculous packs, but anyways, is it, isn't um, that the guy that got like second coming and cherry to fire or something? Okay. Like a two captain of the host and like a Michael and a strong angel in a deck one time too. It was, it was gross dude. Yeah. That guy's run with booster is legendary. Cause I didn't even know the name of the player per se, but I remember hearing about his run at nationals with the luck of uh, getting, getting the dominance or whatever. Yeah. Whichever year he went undefeated at nationals. Um, I mean, we could go back and look it up, but I don't know right off the top of my head. Um, he also went undefeated at Tennessee State and East Central Regionals. Um, like he went undefeated that entire year, so it wasn't it wasn't just at nationals. He he went undefeated, and and you know you've you've experienced it, and it, it's been this way for a few years. We have some really good players. Um, you know, not all of the best players, but we have some really really good players in in our area. Um, throughout the years, we have you know Tyler Stevens and. Um, JD and Daniel Husinga and Brian Jones and Mark Underwood was here for a while. Um, and then obviously both of the chambers and, and I'm going to leave somebody out and feel bad, but like, I mean, all these guys have, you know, been national champs or placed or top cut or, you know, are, are well-known people. Um, 
that the that the community knows. So it's not like Brian was coming in and beating six of my playgroup members and and going, um, you know, undefeated in that. He was playing some. Oh, Jonathan Gomez. See, I told you to leave people out. Like we have some really good players that that Brian basically just stomped. It was it, it was crazy. But the the last thing I've got, unless and you know, unless you come up with another question, is um, especially since you mentioned the uh, the discount for um, church leaders in particular, is you know one of the guys kind of said this, and 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 I, and I understand what he what he was saying, but his statement was, you know, I'm, I'm getting this. He and he talked about the discount too. And he was saying that he actually it was multiple guys, but they were saying that they they weren't trying to make a profit. You know what I mean? They they especially when it was dealing with the church and things like that, um, they wanted to make sure everything that they did was seemed to be and was on the up and up, and that they never quote unquote made a profit. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's uh not to cut you off, but that's kind of I, I asked you because the thought that went in my head, and that's. I would like to know like wh- how Rob and uh, that's not my place because I'm not in that position. I guess that would be Brad from from our little group to to reach out to Rob, but to know how he thinks that that should work or how he wants it to work so that you're not taking advantage of anything. But the way that I was thinking is if he gives if he gives a discount to a person in a leadership position at a church for I don't know maybe it's you know I I I don't know. What, what the discount would be, but if I'm a regular player and I'm sending my money to Derek and not trying to take money away from him or Ken or anything, but if I could buy through Brad for the discount and me not absorb the discount, me pay what I would pay to the retailers, and then that extra goes toward Brad to then buy, you know, a box for the play group or whatnot. So if he's yeah. getting it, I don't know, he's he's selling, he's getting it from Rob for, you know, two-thirds price. And I'm buying, you know, three boxes. Well, at that discount, after I buy three boxes from Brad, then he would have enough to buy a box for the playgroup. Right. And right. and something something like that. So that's why I was genuinely curious is if I can, you know, still get mine and pay what I'm paying now, but then offer support like that profit goes into where that discount kicks in or whatever to building up cards to, you know, incentivize and give away so if Brad has a has a box that he's gifted just because I bought cards, then he can use that box to hey show up, play a game, get a free pack of the newest set, and incentivize right. players coming in. Yeah, and that and that's exactly what I would say to that is um, obviously if you're in and it's kind of going back to the if you're in the playgroup building to um, to create the next wave of ultra competitive national winning champions, then you're probably in it for the wrong reason, and even more so here. If you think that creating a playgroup and getting a discount from Rob is going to make you a lot of money, uh, first off, you're delusional, and then second off, you're in it for the wrong reason. That's it. That that delusional comment sounds like it's coming from experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's I've joked and and it's it's a reality. Um, I've said that if I sold every single card that I had right now, um, I would obviously make a pretty penny because I've got a huge collection and I've got some really nice. Uh, national cards and things like that. Um, but it, I, I don't first think dibs I would, on those. Right. Yeah. Um, but I would never make the money that I've put into this game um, back. 
I, I probably wouldn't even make half of it back. But that's okay because that's I'm not in it for the money. But that being said, if you can make your money and your um, you know the options that you have less tight, um, then that's a huge huge thing. Uh, so again, don't be afraid to quote unquote make a profit. Now again, we're not talking about a ton of money. We're not talking about you know uh, that you're going to be able to quit your job because you're running a, a large tournament. That's just never going to happen. Well, you, you um, can you can quit your job and you can make enough money probably, but it's going to take you going ahead and getting a business loan and purchasing your turn games from Derek. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But being a play test, I mean play test uh, play group leader is not. It's definitely not going to happen. Um, but, but it being able to get the discount and like you said, um, making a little bit of money every time you sell something or, um, another thing that I would encourage people to do is, um, so like for you and Brad, as you guys start, um, making a play group, if, if you guys have all the cards that you need, um, you know, so you guys have all, say you guys have all the rotation cards, right? I don't, I don't know exactly what your collection looks like, but if, if that is where you are as far as your collection goes, if you win a tournament, then save your packs. Like, don't open them. Expect, that's kind of what Sean has dealt with, right? That he's got almost a full set of, of rotation cards now because he's been able to purchase stuff. Um, and so if you win packs... Um, use those packs to be able to supply booster draft or use those packs to be able to apply, uh, supply sealed deck or, um, you know, use those packs as an incentive to, um, like you said, Hey, everybody that comes and plays wins a free pack. Um, or, you know, even better yet, and something that I've allowed my kids to do and, and encouraged them to do, if we do these tournaments, like we mentioned that we have multiple categories running at the same time and they win a pack Hey, pick a pack that you don't have. And then once you have five or six different packs, you know what we're going to do? We'll play booster draft and I'm not going to charge you for booster draft because you have five or six unopened packs right there. So we'll just use the packs you've already got too. There's so many ways that you can save money and run tournaments at the same time. Um, and the discount will go a long way to help you, you know, saving, uh, just trying to save packs and, and be generous will go a long way to help you, um, you know, buying things at a discount as you can, you know, from people um, like Derek or other people selling collections or, or um, you know, full boxes. Hey, I'm trying to get rid of a full box. Here's what I'll sell it for. Um, you know, anytime you can jump on something like that and save a little bit of money, um, do not do not ever hesitate to do that. Because like you said, ultimately what that allows you to do is that allows you to be more generous in the future. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good point. Um, I guess bringing it back to the point that I wanted to uh, to hit in closing was we kind of ended the last episode where we were talking about playgroups with tempered expectations, and I don't think it's it's ever a bad thing to to you know say that again and go over and make that point known is temper your expectations. So if at the end of a year of hosting tournaments you have five players that come more often than they do not. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point, you've got to consider that a success because you've got five players that when you say, hey, we're doing something redemption related, more often than not, they're going to be there. After a year, 
five players after a year is probably not the dream that someone has when they say, oh, I'm going to start a play group. But that's still five players. And now you think about all of the categories that you can play with five players. And then if that next year, if you're at the same level, then you possibly, you know, work toward doubling that to 10 players. But those are tempered expectations versus, you know, like what I was talking about, like I'm going to create, you know, this in six to eight weeks, we're just going to have this highly competitive field of great players. Like that's not realistic. But what is realistic is shooting for like five players that more often than not after after a year of, you know, hosting a play group, that's what you have. And if you get more than that, then that's fantastic and you're you're doing great. But don't look at if you have five players after a year and be like, well, it's really not sticking. Um, because how, how, how long have you done it and how many active players do you currently have? So, um, I, I, gosh, when did I do it? I got back into the game, uh, well, early 2009. So, what, that makes it 13 years? Um, I think so. Best I can, best within, I can recall. Um, so within those 13 years, I've probably introduced or maybe reintroduced would maybe be a good word to say too. Um, I, I don't know, two to three dozen players. So, you know, 25 to 30 players, 35 players, um, this game. And then just for, um, either not liking it or being fully committed to it or life just taking over. I have, um, I basically the, um, kind of beginning of this year, you know, uh, this last tournament season and whatnot, um, I had four truly, um, what's the word committed players. And I had one guy who enjoyed playing, but he lives an hour and a half away. So it's really not realistic for him to to play a lot, but he would show up when he could, um, you know, so 13 years to have four players, but yet I'm, I'm satisfied with that. And within the last couple of years, I've actually had a couple of, um, new guys who, uh, have gone to college, um, who have, uh, played redemption and they've actually connected with me now. And, uh, one of them just graduated and the other one's finishing it up. So that it looks like there's a potential for those two to finally become, uh, full-time committed players in my group. And then I've got two um, new people that have come to the church who have expressed interest, one in particular that expressed interest, but both of them have at least shown a little bit of interest, um, you know, and so now I have the opportunity to maybe double my group, like you said, uh, this year with these, you know, three to four people committing. And uh, now whether they travel with me to tournaments or something like that might be totally different, but as far as the Knoxville tournaments and things like that, then, um, it looks like all of this will will happen. Um, I was talking to one of the the play group leaders, and um, he's a youth minister like me. And he, here's what I will will say. And some people have a heart for this, and some people don't. Um, you know, do what makes you comfortable. But here's what I will say, especially as far as tempering expectations. Um, like I said, if you're if you're trying to to build the next competitive player and that's all your focus is, then you're going to ignore all of the potential quality players that can make your playgroup overall better and bigger. And um, by just focusing on those individuals and, and I, I liken my, um, 
play group just like I obviously they're my kids in my youth group, but I liken them to the to the youth group. And when it comes to a youth group and it comes to a play group and it comes to building kids and, and building a group of people that want to come together, whether it be at church and learn a Bible study or whether it's come together and play a card game. Um, it's all about focusing on the individuals and, and just kind of pouring yourself into them instead of worrying about the numbers, instead of worrying about what they can bring to, to the table for you. Um, you know, in, in church in particular, if you're using, if you're seeing people as what they can do for you and you see that this student or this person has talent, and so you're going to try to build them up and lift them up and do all this stuff and you ignore everybody else, then you're not going to be left with anything. Um, and so I, like I said, I kind of put them together in that sense. So if you spend the time and, and you put your effort and your energy into pouring into these people, whether they're young or old, it doesn't matter. Um, and just focus on the individuals and trying to grow everybody even together um, and, and helping where you can individually, um, then your play group's going to be better as a whole because everybody's going to want to play together. You're going to be able to eventually develop people that you're looking for anyways because you've put the time and effort in and they're going to put the time and effort back in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely... Obviously, the more you have, the the better it looks and the and the greater it is. Um, but a lot of that kind of goes back to what we said too. It, that depends on um, how many people you have interested, right? I, I mean, you could you could introduce redemption to every single one of your employees, like you talked about that you've you've shared it with them. But if they simply don't want to play, it doesn't matter how many times you show them or anything like that. If they're just not interested, they're just not interested. So, so build what you've got. And, and for some people, you know, they might go to one of these huge gigantic churches and they might have 50 people. And then if you, you know, you tend to have a smaller church or a smaller youth group, like I do, you know, four kids is a, is a decent percentage of my youth group in reality. Um, so, you know, percentage wise, it's about, it's probably about the same. Um, so it's just, it's just your view and, and the way you look at it. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously if, if you have a church with only 50 people and your expectation is to have a, gla- a play group of 75 people, then you might have some just unrealistic expectations. Right. So I just know today, like the way that we measure everything seems to be in numbers and not necessarily quality within those numbers. So like you're talking about having those four and you're building a relationship with those four people to where you have an actual relationship with those four people that is much deeper than you would have probably with any that were part of a group of 50. And Mm -hmm. even though you would like to have a huge group, because that means that like you're thriving and word of mouth is working and it's growing while you only have the four, like just accept that as what it is for the time being and develop those relationships. And then in the future, maybe you double in size or whatnot, but build relationships where you're at, um, I think would be the, the key thing. My one time being involved as a leader of a youth group was at a very small church to where, um, if we got if we got fifteen people on a night, like 
I was I was like dancing in the aisle there. <laughs> right. So right. like I mean it was a super small church and it was a older church. So you had, you know, a few teenagers from families within the church, but then pretty much everybody else was from outside and then so we're sitting there one night and there's twelve people, twelve twelve students. And like this was one night, like I pumped it up and I was like, Bring a friend, all this and then you realize you've got, you know, mostly the same faces. But you've got 12 kids out there, and you thought you were going to, you know, hit 20 tonight. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was I was a little discouraged. But then I started realizing, if you count the ones that are from families within the church, we had five kids from families within the church of the, the 12 that was there that night. Which means mm-hmm. that there are seven people that are not associated with the church, do not have a family that is in church, or at least not in our church, Um that are being influenced by the few kids that are in our church and from the the ministry that we have at the church to be involved in that. And that's a success for those seven kids to have some type of, you know, Christian influence at that moment. And you got to be happy with that versus, you know, temper the expectations so that you're not so down because you didn't hit some big number that you were expecting to where you can acknowledge and accept and, be happy and content with, you know, what God gives you. So I think oh, I yeah, think there's definitely sure. a balance there, and our society doesn't necessarily show value and uh, the quality of a situation without having the numbers to quote-unquote back it up and make it look good to the outside perception. Right. And and another thing that, that I've experienced too, and um, if you do are – do focus on the kids that you've got and and you develop those relationships. Um, then especially if they're going to be long lasting relationships or long term committed playgroup players, um, in this context, then the, the more that you commit to them and the more time you spend with them, um, even the more willing they are to introduce it to other people. Um, because, they know that you're going to put that same care into, you know, the bringing in of the new people and introducing it there too. Um, and then, you know, then you, that's when you really have the chance to, to grow and explode uh, when, when you've placed, you know, your, your soul trust and, um, you know, focus on, on the people that you've got that you, um, you know, that they, they know you care and they, they know that, you know, you're going to do what you need to do to, to take care of, of what needs to be taken care of. And I mean, that goes for, obviously we're talking about playgroups, but that goes for a church and anything like that for sure. Um, you know, even, even people working together at a, at a business, you know, if people know that you've got their back, they're going to tend to do better work for you. Yeah, I have definitely, um, I've definitely figured that out. Um, I won't, I won't say that I'm, some great manager or anything, but my guys tell me all the time how much they enjoy working here and working for me because it, we have a small crew and there is those relationships versus just constantly demanding on them and treating them like when it's, when it's to a certain point, it's, it's inevitable to do it because it's kind of just the nature of the beast. But if you have such large numbers at a certain point, an individual is going to be treated as a number uh, because you don't have time to spread amongst them. But having such a small crew here at work, like I've got five or six guys, um, depending. Um, we just lost one part-time guy that had to go and finish up his um, uh, internship. He's 
going to school to be a teacher, and he had done everything that he could without doing that full-time internship, so we lost him. So now I've got five, um, and I haven't had a reason to replace him right now for work volume, but that's five individuals here, and there's a stronger relationship with each one of them versus, oh, we have 20 people, and, you know, hey, I need you to go do this. You know, it's there's a relationship, yeah. you know, like I know their family, like what they talk about their family and stuff, and I can recall – you know, when they tell me something, oh, yeah, you told me that last week. Um, and I've noticed that, like, I've never had that at any any job that I've worked besides this one. I kind of have that with the people that I work for and who is my boss. Um, but you definitely get a different side of someone when they know that you have their back and that you care about them as a person. So you can start developing those type of relationships when you have small numbers before Absolutely. big numbers come in. Um Yep. So I guess we'll get, get ready to wrap that up. Um, I, I would encourage that uh, if you've listened to this podcast you've listened and you haven't listened to the last podcast, go back and listen to that because we kind of got Chris's, uh, I guess, more of your individual experience with starting a play group. And this was more after you've talked to other guys and brought in some other ideas. But there's some good stuff on the other podcast as well. Um. I'm not entirely sure what episode that was. I think maybe 12, but don't. Uh, yes, 12 or 13. I, I I looked it up today and listened to some of it to try to make sure I didn't repeat too much of okay. it. Okay. Um, but it was 12 or 13. It was definitely one of those two. Okay, that's that's fair enough. Um, I, I did not look it up and listen to any of it. So, <laughs> um, But my memory does pretty good to, to keep things in mind that, that we've done here on the podcast. Um, so temper your expectations, kind of apply some of these and maybe get out there and, and, and make a relationship or two. Even if you don't have a large play group, maybe you'll have some that's built on the quality of relationship within it. So thanks for listening. And thanks again, Chris, for coming on and sharing your experience. Um, I guess we could also thank all the guys that you reached out to this week. So thank you all for your contributions to the conversation and we'll catch you guys next week. Peace. All right, guys, that's going to do it for us this week. want to thank you all for listening to the conversation. Hopefully you took some tips and ideas on how to further develop your playgroup once you get it started and up and running. want to thank Chris for coming back on and sharing some insight. want to thank the guys that he was able to reach out to to gain some you know, knowledge and wisdom about what worked for them and what didn't. And thank him for putting all of that information together for us this week want to encourage you to get in your round three matchups for the Lackey Grand Prix. And as always, we'll talk to you next week. Peace. Peace.